Aging Matters on WERA is brought to you in part by Synergy Home Care. Synergy Home Care provides premier in-home care for you or your loved one throughout Northern Virginia, including personal care, homemaker services, companion and memory care, and transportation. Call 703-558-3435 or visit SynergyHomeCare.com for more information. Synergy Home Care will find a care solution to meet your needs. Good afternoon and welcome to Aging Matters on Arlington Independent Media's community radio station, WERA Arlington 96.7 FM. I'm Cheryl Beversdorf, your host. Spousal caregiving tends to be higher intensity than other types of family member caregiving. Being a caregiver for a spouse can have emotional, physical, and social effects and the caregiver may experience greater mental anguish than the care recipient. Today, I have two guests. The first is Dr. Zachary White, co-author of The Unexpected Journey of Caring, The Transformation from Loved One to Caregiver. My second guest is Terry Corcoran, a former spousal caregiver and now public relations chair of the Well Spouse Association. Both of them will talk about how the lives of individuals change when they become spousal caregivers and how it impacts their priorities. My guests will also talk about finding and providing support for spousal caregivers. So welcome, Terry and Zachary, and thank you for joining me today. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you, Cheryl. Okay. Well, Dr. White, I wanted to address you properly here. Dr. White, let's start with you to give us a bit of an overview about this really important topic. Explain to us what are different ways spouses may see themselves when they become caregivers. It is an important and vital question, no doubt, Cheryl, and one that's quite complicated because we think about, if we think about caring in a context of culture, and that's how we make sense of so many relationships throughout our lives. And yet this one relationship of caregiving is almost never talked about in advance of the experience itself. I mean, let's think about it for a moment. Um, we think about all kinds of other relationships, whether that's a partner-based relationship. And, you know, we go from seeing someone to being um, committed to them, exclusive to perhaps becoming married. And um, we have rituals and celebrations and ceremonies like engagement parties and weddings. And then even throughout the life cycle of um, having a child or um, even in our workplace relationships, you know, we, we celebrate and mark 10 uh, year anniversaries and even retirement. And yet, Cheryl, um, your listeners might be able to identify that this one experience of caregiving is almost never talked about until you're in it. And if we examine why, I mean, the label unto itself of being a caregiver is a very threat to a spousal relationship. And that's what we're talking about today, spousal caregiving. Obviously, caregiving exists. Some 45 to 50 million Americans find themselves in a caregiving situation, and some 5 to 6 million um, Americans are see, see themselves as spousal caregivers. So we're talking about significant numbers of people 
and yet so few caregivers. In the book that Donna Thompson and I wrote that you referenced at the beginning, Cheryl, in terms of the unexpected journey of caring, the transformation from loved one to caregiver, um, what we found so surprising, so many of our interviews were drawn specifically from spousal caregivers, is that most people, they might be 20 years into a caregiving situation or months into a spousal caregiving situation, they often don't see themselves as caregivers, in large part because they see them their primary, their preferred identity as spouses. And so this caregiving identity, as we'll talk about, is threatening in so many ways. There is no onboarding for spousal caregiving. There's no talk about it in advance. Who talks about this role? Who wants to think about it? When you do articulate that you're caregiving, or you might even identify yourself as a spousal caregiver, you might find others kind of slowly taking steps back. Calls disappear, uncertainty increases, um, and we oftentimes deny uh, this reality in so many ways, not because we want to deny it, but because we don't see ourselves in a role that no one talks about. I'm too young to be a spousal caregiver. I'm too young to be a caregiver. I work. I, I don't have the luxury of calling myself a caregiver. I, it's not like what I'm doing is an emergency situation, and you can go down and down the line, and I'm sure Terry can add to these. But as we're talking about this, I want your listeners to think about whether and when you did identify as a spousal caregiver, especially given the preferred identity of being a spouse. Okay, well, let's let's talk a little bit more then about that transformation, uh, Dr. White, about from a loved one and the roles that traditionally someone has to uh, becoming a caregiver. What happens during this time? We live in a, a culture in which transformation is exalted in which we're all seeking some type of transformation. Very rarely do we talk, however, about transformations in which we don't necessarily seek out. We don't want. And this, this is what um, my research as a, uh, having a doctorate in communication, really focusing in on how people communicate and make sense of some of the most difficult experiences. And caregiving would be one of the most difficult experiences to communicate, to make sense of, and help others understand. And so, um, you know, before there's any kind of public transformation, you know, you might think about those before and after shows that might show weight loss or a, a house being transformed. But we're talking about oftentimes a transformation that occurs when we're talking about caregiving in the private space uh, of a home or an apartment. And it's also a psychic transformation. It's a relational transformation. And this transformation is one in which um, m most people, when you're honest about it, don't want this transition. They don't want the transformation because they are living in a spousal relationship. And what goes with being a caregiver is oftentimes remarkably daunting. It involves physical and psychological changes, cognitive decline, changes in one's lifestyle, changes in expectations that incorporate not only your loved one's physical capacities, but also you in relationship to your loved one, which reshapes every other relationship you have. I often talk about this as kind of like vertigo, Cheryl. Um, when you're in the midst of vertigo, others may not know it, but the world around you is turned upside down. Everything that you once took for granted is different. And can what once provided you solace can make you remarkably dizzy. And those inevitable feelings of being overwhelmed creep up, and it involves being confused and angry, defiant, helpless, and oftentimes, as you began this program, deeply alone. And this disorientation 
and our examination of the disorientation that accompanies the public transformation is something that I hope that we get into much more detail today because it is what caregivers experience but don't oftentimes have the vocabulary to voice. Okay, so let's talk about the view of the past, the present, and and the future. Um, You're talking a lot about role changes, but in terms of how one views uh, the rest of the way things were before and now and, and the future, does that also change? It inevitably does. Um, most people um, who are in a spousal uh, situation without caregiving, they're able to really think about the relationship, plan about the relationship, connect and become closer and more intimate on a deeper communication level because they have a clarity about the past when they met, they have a story about when they met, how they fell in love, how they became to be their couple. And they also spend a lot of time talking about, thinking about, and planning about the future. And we can't forget in any relationship, planning about the future is the ultimate cementing of our moment. But think about for a moment, if you are in a spousal caregiver situation, the ability to predict what will happen evaporates because your everyday caregiving realities reminds you that the luxury that you once leaned on, the capacity to plan for that cruise or to think about how you're going to live together post-retirement or what you were going to do together, whether it be a month out or the next day, evaporates in an unending and oftentimes overwhelming and all-consuming care for your loved one. And oftentimes, this is not a care that can wait. It is one that if you don't act as the caregiver, then there may be dire physical and cognitive ramifications. And so the script of our past and our present and our future become upended. And the future is no longer a place that we can go for refuge to you know, get us through difficult moments or kind of bide the time during the week. And so what happens, the future no longer is that refuge. And so too, Cheryl, the past becomes something that depending on how far along we are in our care journey, may become a distant memory. In fact, oftentimes caregivers will talk about it being difficult to even gather memories that they once had because the all-consuming nature of the caregiving role for spousal caregivers means that you really have no luxury to go back to the nostalgia and find refuge in the past. And so you are met with a present that is remarkably difficult, oftentimes isolating, and you and your present are there. And that can be quite overwhelming because you don't have the capacity to escape or to find solace in the future and the past as you once did. Okay. So in addition to the views of the spouse and and the caregiver situation, are there possible changes that might occur with other people, the family members, friends, Is there sometimes the possibility of alienation because they've become full-time caregivers? What do you see? Inevitable alienation, and it's most overwhelming for caregivers because the friends and family that you thought would be with you in the most difficult of times may have the greatest intentions, but their life experiences oftentimes don't align with your own. And their values, your previous values prior to you becoming a spousal caregiver, also do not align. And there's a series of those. And, and, you know, whether that's a belief that you are completely independent, spousal caregivers are always recognized that they're completely interdependent on their loved one, 
or even something like power, the capacity, the capacity to make changes in ways that you want. As caregivers, we're often reminded that what we want isn't necessarily possible. And so the people that you held tight in your network of these are my go-tos and they have been through with, with me throughout my life may disappear, not because they're bad people, but because they don't understand what you're going through and your inability to articulate or feeling of inauthenticity in terms of they're not getting what I'm saying can lead to resentment and disenchantment and isolation. And do you think that that spousal caregivers, what do you think that they need to know to survive their new role? What they need to know is that, um, you know, the caregiving, the spousal caregiving role, the caregiving role always trespasses. It doesn't respect your previous relationship boundaries. It doesn't respect how long you've been married. It doesn't respect how you used to do things with your spouse. It doesn't respect what you thought the future would bring for you and your partner. It changes you and it changes your loved one and it inevitably changes your relationship. And that recognition is hard to come by, but is one that is necessary inevitably so that you begin, you can begin to rewrite your own relationship script for you, for your loved one, and what that means. And we're going to be talking more about that in the second half of the program. But I wanted to turn to you, Terry. You are a former spousal caregiver. Why, what did you discover as to why spousal caregiving is different from being a caregiver for other family members like parents or children? What, what did you discover in your experience? Well, the spousal relationship is the most intimate of all relationships, and it's based on the concept of balance. You know, you, you expect that when you get married, you're going to share the responsibilities of daily living, and emotionally, you're going to be there for each other. You're the number one that is going to be there for each other to lean on through all of life's difficulties. Now, when one person in this marriage gets sick, that whole balance gets thrown off depending on the intensity and extent of the illness. And so in a normal marriage, you hear people complaining, oh, he's not taking out the garbage enough. She's not doing the dishes enough. They, They fight over the little chores. Well, when you become a spousal caregiver, you're doing most or everything. So you've got all the physical responsibilities. Um, In some situations, there are children involved. And so the spousal caregiver also becomes the main parent without the support of the other parent. And in addition to all these physical challenges and imbalance of responsibility, you have lost that emotional person that you lean on. The, The caregiving puts you under great stress. And who do you go to to help you with your stress? Well, that person is no longer emotionally available to you, maybe to some extent, but, you know, to the most extent, they're, they're, not, they're not available to you. So it's, it's, it's very unbalancing and it's just extremely, extremely difficult on a marriage. Would you also say, Terry, that there might be unique challenges for a spousal caregiver who is caring for, say, a chronically ill uh, spouse or someone who is disabled, a spouse or partner that might be different? Does it vary depending on what, the, say, the diagnosis or health condition is um, to that, that spouse for which someone is caring? 
Yeah, uh, some spouses don't need quite as much care as others. Um, with me, it was a gradual thing. At first, my husband just needed a little help with certain things, but for most of our experience, it devolved into him needing me to do everything for him. He was completely incapacitated physically and cognitively. So it, it was all on me. So, of course, this is really straining the relationship. And, and not only for the well spouse, for the ill spouse, this can be very difficult because they're probably going to be very frustrated that they can't really fully participate in the marriage. They can be frustrated that the well spouse is, you know, supposedly telling them what to do because they can't do it for themselves. So that can cause an awful lot of conflict. You know, the well spouse trying to do the best for the ill spouse and maybe encouraging them to do more exercise, go to the doctor. And the ill spouse is often not, not compliant and just not wanting to do these things. So there are so many causes for tension in these marriages. And talk a little bit more. You mentioned briefly about the experience with your spouse. What, what were the circumstances leading? It said you said that uh, um, you know, kind of came on gradually. Give us a little bit more of a of, of uh, information about what led you to become a spousal caregiver. Well, I married my husband in 1999. It was a second marriage for us both. So we were not young. We were more middle-aged and he was older than I am, but I thought he was healthy or seemed to be. A month after our wedding, he fell down unexplainedly. Uh, and then he would fall down occasionally if he was stressing himself. And we never knew why. I didn't happen to be with him the first time he was on a golf course. They called the medics. They couldn't find anything wrong with him. As it was, he was just losing his balance, but it would be years before we would understand this. Uh, he would gradually have trouble walking. We'd be walking and he would just freeze and not be able to move. And then he would start up again. And at the same time, right after we were married, his personality didn't seem right. He, he wasn't the same loving person that he used to be, or he was some of the time, but not all the time. And he would withdraw into himself. He was losing interest in his work. We worked together and he was just, I thought, becoming sloppy and disinterested and I was having to take on more of the responsibility. Uh, so after these cognitive and physical symptoms were gradually getting worse and worse, and it took us five years and five neurologists to get the diagnosis of fragile X tremor ataxia syndrome, which is a genetic neurodegenerative condition. Medical science had not even identified this until 2001, after he began having symptoms. By the time the word got out about this genetic problem, we were not diagnosed until 2004. By that time, he was getting pretty disabled. Uh, I had him retire from our business that we did together a few years earlier, and I got myself another job, which I was only able to keep for about a year and a half because I saw he was, you know, falling down at home. He was not able to call for help because his mind wasn't working. So I quit my job in 2004 to take care of him. And so by this time, five years into our marriage, I realized he didn't even remember my name. And he was just failing in so many ways. And this was a newly diagnosed condition. And of course, doctors had no cure. They're studying it. They don't know what to do about it. So it was just a matter of 
managing symptoms as, as they got worse. And uh, so eventually I needed to hire help at home. He just, he just became completely disabled, uh, but peaceful. He was healthy in every other way. He aced all of his physical exams, but because his brain was, was not working, the neurons in his brain were being killed off. He could not coordinate his body. Uh, there was no cognitive ability. He couldn't talk. And he died in 2016, a peaceful death after this just, it was kind of a wasting away. So uh, I did absolutely extreme caregiving. I kept him at home the whole time. I was determined to. This was our marriage and nothing was going to separate us. And I hired help at home a little bit at first and more as I needed it. And oh, for the last maybe 10 years, we had 10 to 11 hours of home health aids in our house. I was able to find uh, an agency that could provide me with strong men who could help him get in and out of the shower and who fed him and did all the heavy work. But I still did the caregiving right along with them. There were things I did, things that the aide did, but it definitely took two of us. Um, having the aide there got me to get out of the house. Uh, the saving grace was my husband was peaceful. Uh, he was he maybe was a little combative in the beginning as those illnesses go, but then he kind of settled down into this just obliviousness and he was extremely peaceful. He trusted me, even though he might not have known my name. He told me he loved me once in a while. So I just hung on to those things. And, um, but yeah, it, it was, it was me living for both of us. Well, and I, I see, or as we're listening to your story, Terry, obviously the, the level of care that your husband required um, changed over time, as you had, had mentioned. Talk a little bit about the information that you um, sought to to try to determine whether you should take care of him or you needed help. What information did you use to assess the level of care that your husband needed? Well, I just kind of made it up as I went along, just, you know, as each, because I didn't know what was going to happen. I didn't know what was ahead of me. Uh, I did contact the doctors at UC Davis in California who discovered this, and I stayed in contact with them, and they they suggested certain medications that may or may not have slowed the progression of the illness. They gave suggestions, but they certainly didn't have a cure. Uh, the doctor that diagnosed my husband became ill very shortly after the diagnosis, and he needed to stop practicing. I uh, never found it. We went through five more neurologists over the years. Nobody knew what this was. None of them really cared because they had no other patients with this. I did all the research. I got a Google alert on his illness. And whenever there was a paper that showed up online, I read it. And I tried to get ideas from there of certain medical tests that he needed. And so I would get that done. Um, it, it was just you know, make it up as you go along, as I said, and I just try to deal with, you know, the incontinence as, as that came along, uh, the home modifications, the grab bars, redoing his bathroom, putting a ramp on the house, getting a transport chair to get him in and out of the house when he could no longer walk, um, the walkers, just you know, the whole thing, just getting information where I could. I did call the um, the county health department and they came out and did an assessment. And I said, do you have any suggestions on what more I could be doing? And they said, no, it looks like you're doing everything you can do. 
And so I just, I, I looked for information wherever I could, but uh, then I, I tried to find a group of people who also had this illness, which was hard to do, but we gradually worked up a Facebook page with other people who were dealing with this and we could, you know, share some ideas, but th th there was no roadmap. You know, it was just deal with each new crisis as it came along and I had to be very creative and inventive. The story that you're telling is probably true of many other spousal caregivers, which is why we're having this program today. So we want to take a short break here and uh, let our listeners know that in case you tuned in late, we're talking with Dr. Zachary White, who is the co-author of a book called The Unexpected Journey of Caring, The Transformation from Loved One to Caregiver. And we're also talking with Terry Corcoran, who is a former spousal caregiver and now public relations chair of the Well Spouse Association, which we're going to learn more about in the second half of the program. But you are listening to WERA Arlington 96.7 FM. We'll be right back. Aging Matters on WERA is brought to you in part by Synergy Home Care. Synergy Home Care provides premier in-home care for you or your loved one throughout Northern Virginia, including personal care, homemaker services, companion and memory care, and transportation. Call 703-558-3435 or visit SynergyHomeCare.com for more information. Synergy Home Care will find a care solution to meet your needs. Welcome back. We're talking about spousal caregiving today, and our guests are Dr. Zachary White, who wrote the book called The Unexpected Journey of Caring, The Transformation from Loved One to Caregiver. And we're talking with Terry Corcoran, who is a former spousal caregiver and now public relations chair of the Well Spouse Association. Both of you did an excellent job of kind of setting the stage for where we are with what the many problems and issues and concerns of spousal caregivers face, but we want to help our listeners understand how we can help them. And Terry, I'm going to start with you because you did mention the fact that you did get some outside help. What were the criteria that you use or other spousal caregivers can use to decide whether it's time to use a home health agency or, or should you just continue to rely on your own support or maybe other family members? It depends on the situation. Uh, some people do have family support, grown children, other people that help. Um, in my case, I, I didn't have that support. It was all on me. And in people in that situation, spousal caregivers, normally we will push as hard as we can and not get help until we are totally burned out because it's hard to see that. And we know that help is expensive. So you resist and you resist because it's very expensive to get home health aids. And in my case, I wasn't sure what I needed them to do. It was very hard to decide because basically I needed someone to help pick my husband up when he fell down in the beginning. That, that was all I needed because he could fall down when I was in the next room because I would say, if you need to get up, ask me for help. But he didn't. And I put a bell next to him. Ring the bell if you need me to come help you walk to the bathroom. But his mind didn't understand that. And I didn't understand that his mind didn't understand that. 
So I was like, well, what do I have to do? Do I have to hire 24 hour help so that, you know, they're there just in case he falls down? Um, I even called, we have a nursing home in our backyard that I absolutely was certain he was never going to have to go to. It was like a threat that this nursing home was standing there. And I was so afraid that someday he'd have to be there and he never was. But I called them once and I said, could I pay one of your aides to come over and pick up my husband when he falls down? And they said, oh, no, we can't do that. So eventually got to the point where I, I was getting burned out and, and he could not be left alone. And so I just hired companion care at first, like two afternoons a week. Somebody came in there and sat with him to make sure that he wasn't going to get up and fall. And that gradually, uh, I was I was still helping him walk with a walker and, and just dressing him and showering him. And I was doing everything until I just couldn't do it anymore. I, it came a point where I couldn't get him to get out of the shower, out of the shower chair. I couldn't move him from one place to another. So uh, I I did get more help and I just randomly thought, okay, how about uh, nine to two, I think it was, something like that. I had somebody come in who helped me shower him and, you know, would give him lunch and give me some time to get out of the house. Well, it's just as things got harder and harder, I added more time. And within a few years, I had help from nine in the morning till three or four in the afternoon. The aide got him out of bed, got him showered. We got him downstairs into his recliner. He spent the day down there uh, between three and six thirty. I was on my own because I could handle that. I could handle feeding him and uh, he was totally incontinent and not able to walk. So we were, you know, using the adult diapers by that point. So I, I could handle that all on my own. At 6.30, an evening aide came back to feed him dinner and help me get him back upstairs to bed because I could no longer do that. I had stair lifts installed in the house, but we had to get him to the stair lift. And I needed the aide to transfer him into bed and help with those kinds of things. But but basically, I mean, I got to the point where I had a neighbor who came in and helped me one day when he fell down. And she just said to me, you've got to get help. You've just got to get help because I was crying and I was totally burned out and melting down. And so I found an agency and started calling for help. Well, and that kind of leads me to the next question. And maybe, Dr. White, you could answer this. In your research, is there a certain point, um, and it's so arbitrary, and I realize this is kind of a difficult question, of when it might be necessary to place a spouse in a care facility. Obviously, Terry talked about being burned out and not being able to lift her husband and other factors. Is there some kind of criteria maybe that um, goes beyond what Terry is saying. I'm just going to re- reinforce what Terry said. I think it's so challenging because there is no magical line here. It's always evolving, especially in chronic caregiving situations. I think the point at which it becomes unsafe for your loved one and or for you and or you're incapable. But even in Terry's story, I think she highlights something important. It's oftentimes caregivers, spousal caregivers are so involved in that situation it can be seen as a type of failure or perceived failure if they can't do it by themselves. And until there's that outside feedback, like you know, a point of you, you need to seek out help, it, it's so difficult for caregivers to reach outside of themselves. And I know we'll get to this later in the conversation, but that's where um, organizations like WellSpouse can help, getting feedback from others who have gone down a variety of paths given the specific and changing conditions of their loved one. 
And I would also ask both of you again, because Terry, perhaps you went through this, but then Dr. White, I'd also ask you, as you began to explore other options for care assistance, in some cases, might it be possible that the spouse who is receiving the care can actually participate in the best option? What would each of you tell me? Well, I think that would be wonderful and optimal if the spouse could do that. In my case, my husband couldn't. I mean, I totally had to think for him and speak for him. His his mind just wasn't working. So that, that wasn't even an option for me. But, you know, if a spouse is able to make decisions, I know other situations in which, you know, the well spouse tries to give the ill spouse as much autonomy and decision-making ability as they can if they're capable of doing it. Dr. White, did you have anything to uh, add in terms of that? Just once again, I think Terry highlights it. It's what we call asymmetrical relationships oftentimes where the spouse is unable or incapable of participating in those discussions that a, a spousal caregiver would love to be able to lean on to make sense of where they are. And the challenge is, is that um, there's so much guilt that is built up about maybe promises you had made before when things were different about what you would or would not do. And yet changing circumstances require new ways of thinking about situations. And oftentimes that falls on the caregiver alone to make those decisions. But I would also imagine that there are certain instances where cognitively the person receiving the care is still fine, but perhaps is losing having other uh, health issues, perhaps more physically rather than mentally, and that that person could participate in what the best um, decision is for, for giving care. No doubt about it. And that's where it's so challenging because every situation is particular and nuanced and is is determined by what is possible and what is possible and what's available to be discussed or addressed now may change in the future and family and friends from the outside may perceive those issues very difficult uh, differently and they may create additional difficulties in terms of questioning the choices that you as a couple or you as an individual make going forward. Okay. Well, Terry, I wanted to get back to you in terms of advocating for your spouse. I I heard you talk about the fact that the kind of uh, health condition that your husband had was uh, unheard of prior to, I think, the early 2000s. And as a result, perhaps there was uncertainty amongst healthcare providers as to the right medication or the right care or the right treatment. Did you have to then serve as the advocate and represent him in terms of, of these aspects of, of his care? Absolutely. I often felt like I was his primary care physician because, you know, as I've often said, all of his doctors, you know, maybe they were mel- well-meaning, but, you know, I'd bring up this illness that he had and they would give a collective shrug. Like, we don't know what to do. And they weren't going to do any research. I, I came out and asked one doctor after after the one that diagnosed him retired. He would have been interested. He would have worked with it, but he couldn't. And I asked the next neurologist, um, do you ever do any research? You know, I wanted them to be creative and research this and find something out because uh, it's very complicated. I would read all these papers on all these molecular things going on in the brain. And of course, I didn't understand that. But uh, so the second, this other doctor that I spoke to said, well, no, I only have one. He's the only patient that has this. So if something comes across in my journals, yeah, then I would read it. 
And they were all like that. I went to, you know, four more before he died. And they they just basically managed the medications that either I suggested or the doctors in California suggested. And, um, you know, of course, my husband had no say in this. He couldn't advocate for anything. And, and you know, I just felt like it was it was all on my shoulders. His doctors did not communicate with each other. I had to go from one to the other. And uh, it, it was just, yeah, it was totally me advocating for him. Well, and let's talk a little bit about you and those responsibilities. Do you find, and now, of course, you are also uh, associated with the Well Spouse Association, would you also talk a little bit about all these demands? Would you suggest or think about the fact or advise folks that marriages sometimes can be at risk of surviving uh, in these kinds of situations? Oh, absolutely. In fact, uh, a statistic that I heard, you know, certainly more than once over the years was that 80% of marriages, when one spouse gets seriously ill, end in divorce, which might make sense considering that I think 50 to 60% of all marriages end in divorce these days. So, um, yeah, it's it's very possible. You know, some people just, just don't want to do it, can't do it. Um, you know, in, in my case, I was bound and determined because, I mean, I did love him and I felt fortunate that I loved him enough to stay by him. And this this was our whole marriage. We didn't have any part of a normal marriage because the illness started right after our wedding, pretty much. And I said, this is our marriage. This is it. We're going to be together. We're going to stay together. And I was just bound and determined that that, that was going to happen. But you know, not everybody else thinks like that. Other people might be in a marriage that was not especially a good one before the illness hit. So again, it's it, it just varies, but it definitely, definitely threatens a marriage. And talk a little bit, uh, I want to get into um, more about uh, Well Spouse Association, but tell us a little bit about the physical demands that you experienced or spousal caregivers in general and the emotional needs. Talk about you now instead of the spouse. Yeah, well, my physical demands were totally extreme. You know, I used to write it with a capital X because it, it was just, I had to do everything for him. Um, I, I tried to pick him up off the floor before I had help. I had to feed him. We had to bathe him. I did, I just took part, every part of his care, the, you know, the skin lotions, the taking him to doctors, you know, looking after every, just every part of his life, trying to keep him entertained. Um, and it, it was just, you know, plus, you know, dealing with all the other things, everything in the house, you know, your house doesn't stop breaking down just because you're a caregiver. So everything was on my shoulders. I had moved into his house, which was left in disrepair since his first wife had died long ago. And I pretty much had to replace everything in the house while I was taking care of him. So, you know, but with all the physical demands, as bad as they were, the emotional part was much worse for me. He just was not emotionally available to me. He couldn't talk to me. That was the most heartbreaking thing. I always said, I can deal with the physical stuff if you could only communicate with me. And I would communicate with him. I would talk to him. I would tell him my feelings because it didn't seem to upset him. And I said, this is our marriage. I'm taking care of you. And in return, I'm being truthful about what I'm feeling. I love you, but this is really hard. But, you know, I want to talk to you about it. And that that's keeping us close. I said, we're just we're just carrying this illness together. 
And so, you know, I, I was just very honestly communicating with him, even though he couldn't communicate back. But that was, you know, that emotional was just worse than any of the physical challenges. And did you also find that you, there were financial and legal difficulties? Uh, yeah, there, the, the care is very, very, very expensive. Uh, luckily we were able to do it. Uh, my husband, you know, was at the age where he had retired and got social security. I had to stop working. So I did have to be careful with money. I had to be very, very careful and just kind of pay for what was essential and somehow it worked out. But for a lot of people, it doesn't, uh, people might have to quit their jobs. The ill spouse and the well spouse might both have to lose their jobs. Um, and then the, you know, the medical expenses just, just mount. There is no insurance for home health care unless you've had a long-term care policy, which we didn't have. I paid for all of that out of pocket and it was a phenomenal expense. And then legally I had to get, you know, powers of attorney in place to speak for my husband, to sign for my husband. I couldn't even get social security to talk to me unless I filed a power of attorney because I'd call up on his behalf and they'd say, we have to talk to him. And I said, well, he can't talk. And so you have to go through all of that legal stuff just in order to advocate for him. It is, it's a lot. Certainly sounds like it. Well, Dr. White, I wanted to get back to you. Uh, we've certainly heard so much of, of Terry's story. In your research of looking at a broader audience, what have you found in addition to everything that Terry has, has shared the, what are the greatest challenges for a, a spousal caregiver? I think one significant challenge that we oftentimes don't think about is how the spousal caregiving experience reshapes what happens between a couple. And it's oftentimes missed because of the, the focus in on maintaining health and well-being to the best of their ability of their loved one. But something, as Terry mentioned before, that so many caregivers across the spectrum it shapes, it reshapes what you do. If disclosure and sharing was the prime way that you connected with your loved one, that may have been taken from you. And that changes so much of how you think about your relationship and what sustains you. What so many caregivers talk about is something how something as simple as touch might change so much. When you're thrust into the caregiver role, you know, you, you must bathe and take care of your loved one in so many ways, but then it changes the meaning of what that touch is. It's no longer for intimacy, it's for well-being of the person that's necessary, but it changes how you think. And oftentimes caregivers say, I don't want to be seen as a nurse, I want to be seen as a spouse. And this kind of territorial contest that's often taking place in the minds of the caregiver is so very challenging. One that very few people address, but it must be re-examined, at least from the perspective of the caregiver, so that you can change the meaning of your role as you exist throughout the life spectrum of your caregiving role. And that leads me to my next question, which I think is what, what we want to spend the rest of our time on this interview is, why is respite care so important for a spousal caregiver? Dr. White. Our listeners heard so much of what Terry was saying in terms of the overwhelming, the total, the extreme with capital X that Terry said, caregiving responsibilities that are 24 hours, seven days a week. There's no vacations. There's very few people who have the capacity, skill, desire, or willingness to go into an uncertain situation to help you out. And the more caregivers are in their role, the less likely they are to trust others simply because they know how nuanced it is and how important to do it a particular way is. I would say respite care, when it's possible, which is not often possible for uh, caregivers, even though it's so important, is 
is a kind of role exhaustion. We acknowledge burnout in the workplace. We don't think about how this caregiving role can be so overwhelmingly exhausting because there's no markers. You never feel like there's enough as a caregiver. There's no way of measuring whether you're, what you're doing is right or wrong, good or bad. You don't get a whole lot of feedback from others. And if you do, Cheryl, it's oftentimes negative or distressful, even though as a caregiver, you're in the situation. And it limits the capacity for self-compassion. Respite care can give you the space and a little bit of time to begin thinking about why you're doing what you're doing, which is so very necessary to help keep you going throughout the continuity, the chronic nature of your caregiving situation. And are there certain types of, of support groups or activities that can be helpful? And, and if so, explain those. Tell us a little bit more about those. And how can folks learn about these, these resources? There are now, thankfully, so many more resources now than there were when Terry was going through her situation. Um, and I would want to point to the Well Spouse Association. I know Terry can talk in depth here about their services, whether face-to-face social support groups or online social support groups. But also remember, support is also finding information, as Terry mentioned. Going online, I mean, oftentimes this is the real challenge. Caregivers are, are reduced in many ways to a world of one. And yet they must also simultaneously be more social than ever. But the social is different than maybe they were before. It is finding ways to connect with others who have experiences similar to their own caregiving experiences so they can relate, identify, begin to make sense of their experiences. And that's where the Well Spouse Association is so very valuable. In my interviews, Time after time, people talk about a lifeline, and they often associated well spouse associated with a lifeline to the world in which they need, which was not the world they knew before caregiving. I was also wondering if some of the now I know Terry was you were saying that in your case the diagnosis that your husband had it was difficult to find other I guess partners shall we say here that whose spouse was dealing with the same kind of diagnosis. But I'm wondering if, for example, Alzheimer's Association or uh, the Association for ALS or uh, some other kind of dementia, that those are good places, even though the focus is on the diagnosis of the spouse, um, that they also have a lot of support groups. Would you agree? Absolutely. There's no doubt that you can, you can identify very different ways. And so first, you're a caregiver. So there are some things in common across all caregiving situations in terms of what we've talked about in some ways today. But they're also very specific. You can start with conditions going into going online to look up conditions and then finding support groups or face-to-face opportunities. Remember for caregivers and spousal caregivers in particular, leaving the home is a luxury that some do not have. And that schedule may be mixed with work and other responsibilities. So online social support groups. And this is one thing that's so important, I think, to remember. We may have had preferences about going online. I don't like to go online or I do like to go online. When you're a spousal caregiver, it almost requires a kind of open flexibility to go where those opportunities are. And going online, providing very nuanced and niched areas in which you might want to identify with others based on conditions or the spousal caregiving situation. And across the Well Spouse Association, you will find a multitude of caregivers who are caring for people with a spectrum of conditions and experiences. And you will find both commonalities across those as well as differences that are significant. So um, 
there are opportunities now available in 2022 that were just not available only 10 or 15 years ago. The greatest percentage of, of rise in use of the internet is amongst people who are 65 and older and caregivers in particular are one of the, the most potent users. And I think they can get the most out of going online to find opportunities for accurate information and significant connection. Okay. And to that point, then Terry, tell us about the Well Spouse Association and specifically what its mission is, why it's unique, and very importantly, also how folks can, you know, what kinds of resources and events are available and how folks can learn about. Is it also WSA? Yes, Well Spouse Association. Uh, they they actually were started in 1988 and has been growing over the years. And it is it is a unique organization because it is primarily for spousal caregivers. There are many, many, many caregiving support groups, but they deal with any kind of family relationship. Well, spouse is the only one that, that I know of that is particularly for spousal caregivers. When I founded in 2005, I was so excited. I walked into a meeting room in a library with 10 other people sitting there and, and immediately I was at home because we were all dealing with the same kinds of situations, not the same illness, but it, it's been wonderful. And people who find it say that it is life-saving. We provide emotional support. It's a place to open and just vent whatever you're feeling in a safe, secure environment that's private. So we can just let it all out. And we also share practical resources. That's where I found my first home health agency was through Well Spouse and as well as other practical resources. Now, since COVID, we've been meeting on Zoom, which actually makes it accessible to, to everybody. We used to have, we had face-to-face -face support groups in whatever parts of the country people would start them in. Um, I am a co-leader of the Northern Virginia DC group, and we used to have two in-person meetings a month. Now we have two meetings on Zoom every month. And um, so, so that, that's been great because a lot of people can't get out of the house. And we're thinking that someday if COVID ever lets up, we'll go back to one in-person lunch a month, which we used to have on a Saturday, and still have another meeting on Zoom, and that way anyone can participate whether they can get out of the house or not. So we offer those kinds of support groups. We have a newsletter that comes out quarterly with stories that are by our members and, and also our honorary members like Dr. White has written wonderful articles for our newsletter. Uh, we have respite weekends that are for those who can get away. They plan little just three-day getaways in different parts of the country where well spouses can just informally go get together just for a break. We do have an annual national conference, which has been online in the past two years because of COVID. We might have one in October in uh, Washington, D.C. and Tyson's Corner. We don't know if that's going to be postponed because of COVID or not, but in, it will either be virtual or it will be in person. Uh, we also have one-on-one -on -one mentoring. If you want to speak to another well spouse one-on-one, -on -one, we can arrange that. Um, we have um, gosh, uh, the website. The website has a bunch of articles and you know reading materials. And we also do a lot of advocacy. We have a social advocacy group that advocates, you know, with with Congress to try to get better home care and, and, and kind of streamline Medicaid and make more financial resources available for 
spousal caregivers. So we also advocate along those lines. Uh, the, the address for WellSpouse is www.wellspouse.org, and that's W-E-L-L-S-P-O-U-S-E, wellspouse.org. So if you go there, you can find out where the support groups are. We have an office in New Jersey. You can call them, and they'd be very happy to direct you to any resources that you might need. And the people who join the group, they're just, they're just so glad that they found us because they think they think that they're the only ones that are feeling resentment and feeling anger and all these you know horrible feelings that creep up on you. And then they join this group and they realize, no, we're all feeling that. You're okay. You're normal. These are normal things to feel in this situation. And I like to help think that well, spouse supports marriages, that we can help keep marriages together because we can support that well spouse and give them, you know, a lot of the emotional support that they're not getting from the marriage. And then they can go back to the marriage knowing that they're not alone. They're not the only ones that are doing this. Okay. Well, we are just about out of time. So any closing remarks from either of you, Terry, Dr. White? I'll just say quickly that um, what, what Terry just mentioned is so important. If you find yourself in a caregiving situation, please find opportunities to reach out. As Terry mentioned, if you feel alone, there's nothing more uh, heartening and making possible resilience than to find others who can talk about the experience in ways that are real and authentic. And as a caregiver, you are more likely to be resilient if you're able to reach out to others who can mark the path for you. Not that your path will be the same as theirs, but they might normalize your experiences. They might help you laugh at your experiences. They might help you cry at your experiences in ways that only fellow spousal caregivers can understand. Well-intentioned family and friends are wonderful, but we must rebuild our network in the midst of this very different experience that none of us may have anticipated. And, and one, one more comment I have too. In well spouse, after your spouse passes away, we can stay there and we are called former well spouses and we offer support to each other after we are widowed. So that is another wonderful benefit. We have not been alone in our widowhood. Well, I think that that is an excellent and timely way of, of closing out this, this interview. So I really, really want to thank Terry Corcoran, who is a former spousal caregiver and now the public relations chair with the Well Spouse Association, and Dr. Zachary White, who is the author of The Unexpected Journey of Caring. Thank you both for joining me today. And today, I also wanted to remind you that Aging Matters is always available on our website, information about Aging Matters, and that's at www.agingmattersonline.com. And at that site, you can access all Aging Matters radio and TV show content, and of course, uh, also the Aging Matters podcasts on Apple and Spotify. Aging Matters is produced in association with Ink Mouth Media. To learn more about that company, visit inkmouthmedia.com. Thank you for listening to Aging Matters today. And remember, age is just a number, not a label. I'll be back again with you next week. Music